excessive financial stress caused by excessive debt will adversely affect attendance at work, performance at work, physical health, and will exacerbate the health insurance coverages. So what will happen is costs are going to go up. So there's a whole lot of unintended consequences, and it's, it's, it's significant. have ever wondered what separates top performers from everyone else, you probably discovered it is just a couple differentiators that determine wild success from average results. My name is Don McPherson, and for two decades I've been working with executives to help them optimize performance at the individual team and organization levels. Now I interview exceptional performers in athletics, music, entertainment, and business, so we can all learn from them. Welcome to 12 Geniuses. America has a money problem. I'm not talking about the 20 plus trillion dollars in national debt. I'm talking about individual debt. U.S. household debt exceeded 13 trillion dollars at the end of 2017. Half of all U.S. employees are anxious or fearful about their financial well-being, which poses great risk to your organization. Our guest today is Doug Lenick. Doug has spent his career developing leaders in a wide variety of industries and helping people make better financial decisions that align with their core values. The first part of our conversation focuses on why people continue to make poor financial decisions and what can be done to create financial competence. The second part of the interview sheds light on what business leaders can do to become more effective in a rapidly changing economy. Doug, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you. It's great to be here. I, I knew you needed some non-geniuses, so I'm glad I got to <laughs> fill that part. Well, I'm sure you will share your genius in, in your own way. Let's start by talking about America's debt, specifically our consumer debt of somewhere between $13 trillion and $15 trillion. Have Americans always had high levels of individual debt? No. No. In fact, you know, years and years ago, people had no debt, you know, and they wouldn't buy things if they couldn't afford things. And so, you know, the advent of credit gave people the opportunity to have stuff they couldn't afford. And, and then, you know, what we've done is we've spread that around the world. So we, we now do this for other countries, too. We let them borrow money they can't afford to pay back. And when did this sort of irresponsible borrowing occur? When did this start? I, you know, I don't really know. I, I would say sometime post-World War II. You know, so prior to that, there wasn't a lot of debt, you know, and so if you go back to like my grandfather's generation, my grandparents' generation, they didn't really have a lot of debt. In fact, they didn't have any debt. You know, they, it was pay for it. And then, you, then, you know, somebody thought, well, what if we loaned people money? I mean, it became an interesting business model. It's not a bad business model, not necessarily a bad thing to borrow money. But what, what happens is people get caught up in having it now, paying for it later. And a lot of the stuff that they borrow money for depreciates immediately. And so the item they bought starts getting worth less every day, and then they still have this debt. You know, so not all debt's good debt. There is 
what they call good debt. But even that is a little overrated. You were talking as we were warming up for the the broadcast here that it's not necessarily the amount of debt that's a problem because we have a lot of assets as well, but it's the concentration of debt. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look in the in the private sector in the United States, the the assets of private Americans exceed 110 million, 110 trillion. The debts in that 13, 15 trillion. So it's, you know, by itself, that's not a macro problem. So we it's not like a hundred, you know, 10 trillion of assets versus 15 trillion of debt is a problem. That's not a bad number. The problem is the debt is concentrated and and so are the assets. So right now, you know, if you there's 326 trillion or 326 million people in the United States. And and if you start looking and breaking it out, 23% of them are baby boomers. They control 81% of all financial activity. That's incredible. It's incredible. So so they possess about 85 to 90 trillion of these, of these 110 mil, 10 trillion assets. Wow. Correct. So they they they're the ones that own everything basically. You know, now what's happening is the other generations are starting to accumulate some things and there's this intergenerational wealth, but the the youngest or the the newest in the workforce generation, you know, the the millennials, they they have a high degree of of debt. So they've got like 10% of all the debt, a little more than that, is theirs. And it's education. It's, you know, so digging out of this is going to be a big problem for many of them. And so what you have are young folks who are overburdened with debt. And then and then you have a concentration of wealth. And, and then currently what's happening is we're making the spread break bigger. So the haves are going to have more, the have-nots are going to have less, and so the gap is going to grow, has been growing. That's the problem. Of course, credit cards and credit debt, is that's an important part of our economy. Is there a benchmark or a point where an individual's debt starts to become irresponsible? Do you have any sort of benchmark that you can share for that? Well, I would simply say that when you look at your... See, what confuses a lot of people is they think of their gross income, they borrow on their gross income, but they spend on their net. You know, so if I make 50,000, but I take home 35,000, I borrow as if I make 50,000, but I actually only make 35,000. You know, I mean, that's what I really bring home. So I don't pay back from the 50, I pay back from the 35. And so what happens you know, and lenders look at your your gross revenue. So what has enabled some of this irresponsible borrowing and running up of the debt? Well, a lot of it is, you know, a friend of mine from Australia, this guy named Arun Abey, you know, A-R-U-N is his first name, A-B-E-Y is his last name. He wrote a book called How Much Is Enough, which was a big success in Australia. And then I helped him launch the book here in the United States. But one of the things that he points out is that in the United States, we spend twice as much money encouraging people to spend money hmm. 
than we spend on educating people. This is th- through marketing, or how do you break that down? Yeah. So if you look at all of the, you know, all the things that we do to encourage people to buy something, right? We spend twice as much money getting them to be stupid as we do getting them to be smart. So if you took preschool through PhD and all the expenses in the entire country and then doubled that, we spend twice as much on getting people to spend money as we do on getting people to be smart about money or about life. About anything, right? You're talking about education in general. Yeah, it's not just financial education. In fact, we don't do financial education. Well, that's something that I wanted to ask you about is where are they doing that well? Because we'll get into emotional intelligence in the second part of this interview. But in my opinion, and from what I've seen, I think that this country could benefit from much better financial education starting at a very young age and also better education around emotional intelligence. So so let's talk about financial intelligence. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, we could do a much better job of of helping people become responsible with their money and helping them be financially intelligent, which really is how to be, you know, make smart values-based decisions, you know, responsible values-based decisions with money. We don't do that. You know, so we, we by and large ignore it. And, and families are reluctant to talk to their children about their financials. So parents don't talk to kids. You know, that's off limits. So kids aren't ever introduced. You know, some of them get a, an allowance. Some of them don't. Some of them get a kick in the butt. Some of them don't. You know, but there is, there's just generally an aversion to talking openly. In fact, spouses don't talk to each other. It's it's one of the biggest problems in marriages today. It's, it's a taboo, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You just don't talk about your money. Let, let me share a profile with you. We've got a person making $50,000 a year, which we know that's gross income. They're probably taking home thirty-five dollars to $40,000 of that money. They've got $30,000 in credit card debt. It's revolving. Let's say it's at an interest rate of 20%. Let's even say it's 12%. You know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And then they've got student loans of twenty five, maybe $35,000. They're dead. <laughs> okay. But, but how did they get there? Because they had a decision-making process, right? And, you know, so this is the, they have the wrong decision-making process. And we're going to talk about what the right decision-making process is in a minute. But... Was it that inability to delay gratification or how did they get there? What have you seen in your experience? Well, the way they got there is the credit card debt was a matter of getting stuff that they could enjoy now. So I get the benefit of it now. Like I know a credit card company that opened business in Mexico. And they said the only thing that the Americans have that you don't have is a credit card. So we'll give you a credit card. That's their marketing strategy? Yeah. It crushed them. Crushed the people that borrowed the money. Mm. You know, because once you borrow that money, you can't get out. You know, and, and you know, and then your your payments will cripple you pretty much indefinitely. I mean, you have to really get a hold of yourself. And that's very, 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 very hard. You know, so that's that's the issue. Yeah. You know, so so for most people, it's an issue of I want it now and and I can have it now, so I can 
enjoy the car now. I can enjoy the new couch now. I can enjoy, you know, whatever it is now. I don't use this term lightly, but it's a form of financial slavery. And if, and if slavery is too harsh a term, maybe it's indentured servitude. And while they're enjoying whatever that is, that car, that latte, you know, whatever it is that's accumulating this great debt, there's a chain that's being put around their ankle or around their wrist. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's no question about it. And, you know, and people don't see it, you know, and if they're lucky, you know, like I've had situations in my own family where, you know, people accidentally borrowed more than they should have. And then they realized what was happening. And then they go, oh, mom, dad. Now, fortunately, we've been able to rescue them. But a lot of families, they can't rescue them. Most, right? The majority of families can't rescue them. And so, and then once they're rescued, you know, put them on a responsible path. But, you know, it's expensive tuition. Right. Well, you're an expert in the workplace. That's where I've spent my past 20, 25 years is helping organizations get the best out of their employees. So we share that. And I want to talk about the byproducts of debt stress, particularly in the workforce. So I'm assuming you could cite data on the effect that debt has on an individual's health or personal relationships. But yeah. what about performance at work? How well, does how does debt affect that? Well, if you connect debt to stress, so it's not the debt, it's the stress. You know, so financial stress, so adversely affects employment. It adversely affects performance. It unfortunately contributes to absenteeism. So as because here's what we know, as financial stress goes up, and I created this metaphor, from misery to wisdom. So M is, is uh, the initial for misery. So what we know is as financial stress goes up, one's ability to handle things emotionally goes down. So our listeners can draw the picture right now. But stress going up, you got an M, stress is going up. One's ability to handle things emotionally goes down. Irrational decision-making and behavior goes up. Physical health, emotional health, slash happiness, and financial health all suffer. Mm-hmm. So They're going the wrong way. They all go the wrong way. And, and when that happens, what happens is absenteeism at work goes up. So people don't show up. They just can't deal with it. Right. They, they, they just can't add another stressor to their life. Right. So so they just they call in sick more often. So your absenteeism will go up and anybody can look all this stuff up. This is real. So we're not kidding you. So you know, we know for sure that excessive financial stress caused by excessive debt will adversely affect attendance at work, performance at work, physical health and will exacerbate the health insurance coverages. So what'll happen is costs are going to go up. So there's a whole lot of unintended consequences and it's, it's, it's significant. So what we say then is how do you go from misery to wisdom? And the answer is you start getting a hold of yourself. You start becoming financially intelligent. You start leveraging your financial intelligence. And when you start doing that, 
there is an intersection between money, health, and happiness. Okay, and that and that's what I want to ask about is, it, what's the solution? What's the framework for responsible financial decision making? Well, the framework is really to start recognizing that I've got to get prepared for the truth. And the truth is uncertainty. And so what we find is that as people prepare themselves financially for uncertainty, it reduces their stress. So now we're into wisdom. So now you take that M, turn it over, and now financial stress is coming down. One's ability to handle things emotionally is going up. Irrational decision-making and behavior is coming down. And physical health, financial health, emotional well-being, and happiness all improve. So we know for sure, we have the data that actually say, if, if you are prepared financially for uncertainty, you will have less stress. If you have less stress, you will be healthier. If you are healthier, you will be more productive in your life. And where can people get started? Or how do you, how do you recommend that people get started? I recommend that, you know, people, you know, th these things all sound really trite because I say, instead of buying a lottery ticket, you know, let's say you go in, you know, three times a week and put $5 down and buy lottery tickets. I've never bought a lottery ticket, by the way. And that doesn't make, you know, me especially wonderful. It just means that I understand the odds of me taking that money and putting it in the bank are better than the odds of me taking that money and buying a lottery ticket. People that work at the lottery, you know, I would say just save that money. You know, it's going to go slow and you're going to think, well, if I just won the lottery, I know, right? So, you know, if you just won that $155 million. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people are looking for hope. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, what what, that's what so the lottery is selling. You, you, you just change, you have to change behavior. Behavioral change is really hard. So we know a lot about behavioral change and, you know, you know the human being we're wired to repeat behavior you know and however long you however old you are or i am or any of our listeners are it's taken us our entire lives to be just like we are you know and to you know so it took you your whole life to be just like you and even you know if your children want you to change your behavior because i had a daughter who was telling me i should do something different as recently as yesterday because that I limp too much. <laughs> no, I, I get that. So e even when someone who loves you says it's time to change your behavior, it's still hard. It's not easy. So you have to accept that behavioral change is hard, but your mind can override the brain's impulse to re repeat behavior. Perfect. So I want to ask about that. And I want to ask you about delayed gratification, marshmallows, and change. <laughs> okay, so and and then we're going to we're going to end this segment. Yes. So, so 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 you haven't, but but it's it's you know the experiment. So, why don't you describe the marshmallow experiment? And I also want you to address those who ate the marshmallow. And if they had the ability later in life to change. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the marshmallow experiment, yeah. what it is. Here, here's what it was. And, and for those who are unfamiliar with this, this is, you know, several decades old. So they started a, 
an experiment, and I, I can't give attribution, I can't remember who, who ran the experiment, but, but what, what they did is they brought a bunch of little kids into a room, and, and the only requirement for being a participant, if you were a kid, is you, have to have to, you had to like marshmallows. You know, if you didn't like marshmallows, it wasn't good, because then you wouldn't care. But if you liked marshmallows, then here was the deal. They would put a marshmallow on the table between us, and, and they would say, now I have to get up and I have to leave and I'll be gone for a little while. And that marshmallow is there and that's your marshmallow. If you want, you can eat it. But if you wait until I get back, I'll give you two marshmallows. So if you can delay your gratification in essence, that you don't say that to a six-year-old kid, but you say, if you can wait, I'll give you two marshmallows instead of one. And so that's for, a good return. That's a good Sometimes return. we have to wait seven years for that sort of return. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a great return. And so what then they would do is they'd leave the room and these little kids would sit there and they'd look at that marshmallow. Some of them would get up and they'd go stand in the corner so that they wouldn't have to see the marshmallow because they thought if I see the marshmallow, I'm going to eat the marshmallow. Some of them would pick up the marshmallow and they'd nibble on it a little bit. Some of it would just, would just eat the marshmallow. And then they longitudinally for like two decades, they followed these kids and they discovered that the kids that could wait were the kids that had the most success in life broadly. They, they had better family lives. They had better social lives. They had better professional lives. And the people that couldn't wait, the people that couldn't control the impulse, those little kids that couldn't control their impulses, they had a much rougher ride. And, and, but the wonderful thing is you can actually teach impulse control. And, so, and you can teach that to little kids. And, and you can teach right from wrong little kids. There's, there's a lot of interesting little techniques you can use with little kids. Red light, green light, yellow light. You know, red light is stop. Green light is go. You know, so we, we all, you know, you learn that fairly early in life. You learn that red light, stop. You know, yellow light, you know, caution. You know, green light, go. You know, and so you teach people, you teach little kids. You can teach little kids how to take the concept of red light, yellow light, green light, and apply that to decision making. That's great. And by the way, it's Stanford University. Oh, and Stanford. The, the professor was Walter Mischel. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. See, you did your homework. I didn't know you were going to ask me that, though, but I still. Well, it's one of my favorite studies. Among, you know, Stanford, I was just doing, you know, interesting things, but that was from the late 60s, early 70s. When we come back, we're going to talk about leadership, leadership effectiveness. That's an area of expertise for you as well. We talked about changing children. Now we're going to talk about changing adults. So we'll be back in a moment with Doug Lenick, CEO of think to perform This is the best time in human history to be alive. People are living longer, healthier lives. Millions of people are escaping abject poverty every year and diseases that used to be a death sentence are on the ropes. But the world is changing quickly too. Artificial intelligence, advanced robotics, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, and a host of other technologies will change the way we live and work. Is your organization ready for it? 12 Geniuses isn't just a podcast. 
We are an organization that educates leaders about the changing world of work so you can harness new technologies, demographic changes, and innovative business models. To learn how 12 Geniuses can help prepare your leadership team to take advantage of the changes that will shape the next decade, check us out at 12geniuses.com. All right, we are back with Think to Perform CEO, Doug Lenick. In the first part of the interview, we discussed responsible financial decision-making. In this segment, we are going to discuss effective leadership in a rapidly changing world. Doug, even more than for your expertise in financial behavior, you're known for leadership development and executive coaching. I'd like to start with the issue of senior leadership trust. The Edelman Trust Barometer indicates that only 52% of Americans trust business as an institution. Research that my colleagues and I did at Modern Survey polled 8,000 full-time U.S. employees and found that only 47% said they trust their senior leadership. Why is trust so dangerously low in the C-suite? That's going to say that's pretty high. <laughs> well, I should say, I should say. We, we segmented it. Uh -oh, okay. So 47% said they trust their senior leadership. But when you look at companies over 10,000 employees, it's, it's closer to 40%. Yeah, yeah. yeah the very large organizations. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of it is, is based on what employees observe from senior leadership. So, so the behaviors they observe, the decisions they see be made, and... And so I think it creates some concerns about trust. You know, in fact, the younger Stephen Covey wrote a, a book called At the Speed of Trust. But his, his dad, Stephen Covey, who I was fortunate enough to get to know and, and who was kind enough to actually endorse one of my books, he didn't endorse a lot of books. And so he endorsed, endorsed moral intelligence. But I, I learned a lot from him not just his seven habits, just but from talking with him, spending time with him. And he used to always say that trust is a function of character and competence. And someone could be competent and lacked character, and therefore they were not trustworthy. And someone could have high character but not be competent, and they were therefore not trustworthy. I think where most of the trust issues fall is in character. And, and when we wrote, when Fred Keel and I wrote Moral Intelligence and then Moral Intelligence 2.2, 2.0, and then he, he wrote the book Return on Character, which he wrote without me, great book, longitudinal study. We, we looked at moral principles, one of which is integrity, and when you have it, you produce trust one of which is responsibility. When you have it, you inspire the workforce. Third of which is compassion. When you have that, you engage the best efforts of people, you attract and retain people. And the fourth is forgiveness, which is you know the ability to let go of mistakes, move on so that you can innovate. Even though integrity is the one most directly associated with trust, it's really the combination of them all and basically the data say that when when executive leaders demonstrate they care about people which is compassion and they do so with with integrity so they keep their promises they tell the truth they stand up for what's right 
you know, they do things like that, then they have great trust. You know, I was fortunate, one of the great leaders that I had a chance to work for recently retired as CEO and chairman of American Express, Ken Chenault. And when, and I reported to Ken for a number of years and supported him worldwide. I had a department of nobody, you know, basically, but, but I did a lot of stuff around the world and got to work in a lot of different places. And, and one of the things that was impressive to me was at one point, you know, there were a lot of things that were going on in the early 2000s, including 9-11, you know, and he and I spoke about, you know, what are the so what's about 9-11. And then there were other things that came as a result of that. And eventually, you know, there was a time when, when the company needed to lay off some people. And, and he got all these wonderful notes from displaced workers. Hmm. You think, you know, how did he do it? <laughs> he did it because they they were writing little notes. I read a lot of the notes, you know, that these these people loved working for Ken. They appreciated his honesty. But they were laid off. But they were laid off. And but he cared about. Them. How did he handle it? How did he do it differently than other CEOs have done it? He he told them, you know, I, I care about you and I'm, you know, and I I feel for you. I, I've I've had other situations where so he did it in a compassionate way. He did it, yeah. I mean, so he could do the organizationally responsible thing, you know, because you know when you're running the company, you've got a lot of constituents. You've got your shareholders, you've got your customers, you've got your workforce, you know. So and then you've got the community at large, and you have to be you know you have to juggle that whole thing, you know. It's not though it's not just about shareholders. People will trust you if you actively demonstrate that you care about them, even if you have to let them go. And, and sometimes you do. You know, that's sometimes what happens. Sometimes it's for a performance reason. Sometimes it's for a business, you know, because you know, I always say the purpose of business is no more to make money than the purpose of life is to breathe. But if you quit breathing, it's going to ruin your day. It's a bad, bad, <laughs> it's a bad, bad end game. Yes. yes. So you don't wake up to breathe. You breathe to wake up, yeah. and you don't make money. You know, you make money to to be in business. Stay you in business. It's yeah. fuel. It's fuel for it's the business. Fuel for the business. Right. You know, and so sometimes people get confused by that, and and I, I think a lot of leaders don't do a very good job of articulating it. But when they do, people buy into it. I want to introduce a hypothetical situation. Let's say you're an existing CEO and you have this 40% of your employees trust senior leadership. What would you do to set a foundation to regain their trust? Well, there's a couple of things I would do. One is I would, if I had the data, I would say I have this data that says somehow I've lost your trust. So one, thank you for telling me. That's hard to do. So thank you for letting me know. Two, I want to share with you how I think about things. Now, this assumes, by the way, if you don't really believe this, don't do this. You know, so... Don't fake it. Don't fake it. No, don't fake it. You'll get exposed, right? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, if you don't really care, don't say you care. That, That won't play. But if you do care, 
say you care. And it's okay even to be emotional, but just say, hey, you know, I am sorry that this is the reputation that myself and my senior team have developed. And for whatever reason, we've earned it. And we want to earn our way out. So I want to share with you the things, because trust to me is a function of self-awareness, self-disclosure, and discovery. So I'd like to rebuild the bonds. I want to share with you the things that I care most about. So let me tell you what my values are. My values are family, happiness, wisdom, integrity, service, health. So now I've disclosed, I've shared that with you. I want you to actually pay attention to me. And if you see me behaving in ways inconsistent with my values, or like I think to perform, our values are people, integrity, growth, excellence. If you see us behaving in ways inconsistent with that, and by the way, I have personally been called out on that. So, you know, and as hard as it is to hear it, it's better than not hearing it. Because once I know I can do something, so I want to be aware of my own situation. I want to disclose it to you. And then I want to discover yours. I want to I find out what matters to you most. And so this whole notion of values-based leadership is really very powerful, very strong. So one of the things that I find really interesting about that is completely accepting the results, right? And not spending any energy or any time on well, that's your perception. I know what the reality is. Yeah, right. Right, which I find a lot of leaders typically do. Oh, yeah. Is I've tried that. You have. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work so well. No. <laughs> Do you know Ray Dalio? No. Oh, okay. CEO and I think founder of Bridgewater Associates. Yeah, I know who he is. You know who he is. Yes. Yeah. So actually, what you were talking about reminded me of one of his principles, which is complete transparency. Yeah. And he allows people at any level within his organization to call him out on something. Yeah. And he completely accepts it. Yes. Yeah. That's how I feel. I mean, I've, you know, I had an organization, you know, I wasn't the biggest guy in the world, but I had 17,000 people report up to me. And I said, here's the, here's the deal. And I told all the people this. I said, our culture is this. I want anybody to be able to talk to anybody about anything at any time. And I want to tell you what I believe, and I want to tell you that I genuinely want you to hold me accountable. That completely removes ego from, from yeah. the equation, <laughs> which is really difficult to do. Yeah. Exactly. When I had janitors talking to me, I'll tell you for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, which, and, and I loved these people, and I knew them by name. You know, take the time to get to, people like their names, by the way. Get to know people. They do like their names. Yeah, I think it's the sweetest sounding word, right? <laughs> By 2020, half the U.S. workforce is going to be comprised of millennials. Yeah. And that means that, uh, well, at the same time, about 10,000 baby boomers are retiring every day. Until 2029. And in fact, interestingly, the millennial population is the only group that's larger in numbers than the boomers. Than the boomers, Right but by a little bit. So we're going to see a huge shift in leadership experience in our organizations. 
My question is, what one piece of advice do you give first-time managers? I basically say how effective you are at influencing others, which is what leadership is about. Leadership is everything you do to influence others. And leadership and management are not synonyms. Right. So what's the difference? One is managers are appointed by people who have the authority to appoint them, and leaders are chosen by followers. Right. So leaders are actually people someone wants to follow. They are influenced by leaders. And so I say, how effective you are as a leader, as an influencer, is a function of how effective you are at managing yourself. So you can't be a train wreck at at home or at work and no. expect yeah. to have, a, to have a, a, a big following? No. If you can't manage yourself well, don't expect that you're going to influence anybody very effectively. I mean, you'll influence them. But not in the way you want. No. <laughs> <laughs> so define, define self-management. Well, self-management is essentially one of the, you know, you know, how do you know you're managing yourself well? I answer that by saying people who manage themselves well align their reality, their thoughts and their actions and their emotions to the extent they can, consistent with their goals and consistent with their values. So I will know I'm managing myself well when I'm thinking and doing what I need to think and do, regardless of how I feel, mm -hmm. which is where we get into emotional competence. So however I feel, if I feel frustrated, I still can decide to do the right thing. If, if, if I'm, you know, so, you know, if I'm anxious, if I'm angry, I can still do the right thing. So I can, you know, still think and do what needs to be done to honor my sense of purpose, achieve my goals, and do so consistent with principles and values. And when I'm doing that, I say I'm living in alignment, and then I am managing myself well. And my point of view on leadership is the most effective leaders live in alignment, and they help the people they influence do the same thing. So what I try to do is align what I think and do with my goals, my sense of purpose, and my values, and the principles. And I try to help everybody around me do exactly the same thing. And if I can do that, the better I'm at that, the better I, I do that, the more engaged my workforce is, the more engaged my workforce is, the better the performance of our organization is. You give me an engaged workforce and I'll give you high performance. What one piece of advice would you give a first-time CEO? I, I would say first thing you should do is get in touch with your people. Find out what they want for themselves, What, which we call witty-wiffy. You know, position yourself as an enabler. Think of yourself as somebody who is there to help the people around you succeed. Surround yourself with successes. I was always, always the least educated person on my team. You know, when I was a senior executive, I didn't graduate from college till I was 57. I'm 66. I, you know, I had Ivy League MBAs. I had PhDs. I had all that. I was never intimidated by having more well-educated, smarter people around me than me. I, I, you know, that, you know, my, my whole thing was 
if you do really well, people will think I'm doing well. <laughs> and and that's how I, that's what I would say to a first time CEO. It's not about you. This next decade is going to bring us incredible new technologies. I'm talking about artificial intelligence and sophisticated robots, wearables, 3D printing, et cetera, et cetera. Things are becoming more widely adopted. These technologies are. How do you anticipate that the leadership competencies will be altered of an effective leader over the next decade or so as a result of these technologies? I actually, you know, that's an interesting question, Don. I would say I'm not sure that the human condition is going to change significantly with the technologies. So I think human beings will remain emotional beings. I don't think we're going to be Dr. Spock anytime soon. And even in the end, I think Dr. Spock got emotional. <laughs> Not a big fan, but I think I think I do remember that episode, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I think this notion We're that, talking about the Star Trek Dr. Spock, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> not the baby doctor. Not the baby, not doctor. The baby doctor. Okay. No, no, exactly. So, I mean, I'm thinking that even though people are thinking we will become an emotionless species, I don't believe it. It's good. I don't think it's going to happen. But, Certainly not in the next 10 years. But doesn't emotional intelligence become even more valuable? Yes. Yes. But that that's more about being emotionally intelligent versus being emotionless. Emotional intelligence isn't the lack of emotions. It's the awareness the, of no, that's, the emotion. That's, that's my point. I yes. think I think it becomes even more important. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's an interesting point. So I would say the differentiators will continue to be, and even more so, emotional and moral. So your sense of, you know, this ability to, you know, handle yourself well under pressure and be emotionally competent and then being you know morally competent and you know and, and i always say there's for example there's a difference between moral intelligence and moral competence one can be morally intelligent and morally incompetent in the same moment meaning i'm doing something that i know is wrong right you know that's the incompetence right knowing it's wrong is the intelligence and so Having it is one thing, acting upon it is another. And I think that increasingly the differentiator will, the differentiators will be moral and emotional. Cognitive and technical competencies will be table stakes. So, so I want to bring that back to the beginning of this segment. Yeah. You were talking about trust and you were talking about competence and character. Yes. Doesn't character become amplified or the importance yes, of character absolutely. become amplified. Absolutely. In the first segment, we talked about the marshmallow test or the marshmallow experiment and how you can change children yeah. and their behaviors. What about, what are the most effective ways of changing adults? Wow. And, and I want to position this because I do believe that the, the technologies that I mentioned artificial intelligence, yeah, and yeah. they are going to change the, the way we live and work. No and, and those people in the workforce who choose not to be adopters or who choose not to elevate their experience and their knowledge will be left behind. That's and I, I'm right. very worried about this. Yes, they, they, they in fact will. I will say, you know, that 
One of the concepts that I, I worked on and we've worked on at Think to Perform is what we call the four R's. And th these are neuroscientifically proven to work. The neuroscience is the study of the brain and how you can rewire your brain as an adult. And we now know that the adult has more ability to change than we have heretofore given ourselves credit for. You know, a lot of us grew up hearing, you can't teach old dogs new tricks. That's not true. So the adult brain is more malleable, it's more changeable. And we now know that well into people's 90s, and we're starting to get new data on people above the century mark, the centenarians, people can keep rewiring their brains. And so I'll give you four quick things. We call them the four R's. The first is to recognize. And the way the brain works, incidentally, is practice makes permanent. Practice does not make perfect. So whatever you repeatedly think, whatever you repeatedly to, do gets wired into the habit center of your brain. But the first R is to recognize. Recognize what you're thinking. What am I thinking right now? How am I feeling right now? What am I doing right now? Recognize. Recognize, you know, what's Don thinking? You know, how's he feeling? The interesting thing about that is it sounds so simple, but I don't think very many people do it. Oh, no, almost nobody does it. And simple and easy are not synonyms. <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, they work against each other uh, quite, quite often. It's very simple, but it's very hard. Right. Second R is to reflect. Reflect on what? Reflect on the big picture. Reflect on your values. Reflect on what's most important to you. Reflect on your goals. Reflect on that. The process of reflecting will calm the emotional center and improve the probability of you making a rational decision. Third R is to reframe, which just means I might have to change what I'm thinking. This is really, really hard. People hate changing what they're thinking. You know, as a, you know, a, a, a growing human being pursuing your potential, it's very likely that there are going to be some things you discover that make you think differently about what you used to think. So we've got recognize, reflect, reflect reframe. And the third and the fourth R is respond, make a choice. I got it now. And the choice could be to do nothing. You know, you don't always have to decide to act. Sometimes the right choice is to not do anything. I think I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. So this is a perfect, <laughs> a perfect segue into the last question that I want to ask you. It's, okay. it's a quote from one of your books, my favorite quote. My favorite author. <laughs> so in your book, you said, and I think this might have been The Simple Genius, but happiness is a state of mind, not a state of affairs. Yes. Essentially, you're saying that you can choose to be happy. You yes. don't have to wait for the conditions to be perfect for you to be happy. You actually can make a choice, which is amazing. Well, and I would say this, happiness, the, the thing that I throw in the middle that isn't in the quote is happiness is a state of mind contingent upon a person being true to his or her beliefs. So if, if I honor my values, then it's not a state of affairs. You know, and that's why we have data that say, 30% or more of people on or below the poverty line consider themselves happy and thriving, even though somebody has told them, you have no right to be happy. You don't have any money. Right. 
I, I, I noticed this, you know, one of my favorite countries to travel to has been Guatemala. And I've oh, been there yeah. been there three times, Jake. not not for a while, but... Is that where you take 8 million tennis balls? I've taken a lot of tennis balls and <laughs> racquetballs and given them to the kids. But you will notice in, in this country, or at least my experience has been, it's been a while since I've been there, but these kids have nothing. They have a stick and they have a rock and they're playing and they're happy and they're smiling and, and they didn't have to buy the stick at the store they didn't, they didn't and and nobody told them that they they can't be happy right. so it's 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 beautiful but but I love this happiness is a state of mind not a state of affairs my question and let's close on this is how have you used this maxim in your leadership coaching well in my leadership coaching i i always say you know as long as you know and and, and part of how i've used it is i say happy people perform better you know so if you're happy you're better in every dimension of your life. You know, you're better, you know, as a partner, a husband, you know, a significant other, a father, you're better as a friend. You know, happy people just are better at everything. And so I I point out, you know, and, and happiness is selfish. I mean, you know, because it's yours. I mean, you get to be happy. It's like, ah, I feel guilty when I'm happy. Well, get over it. You know, it's okay to feel happy. In fact, you can't give away that which you don't have. So what I do is I tell people, if you're happy, you can help other people. That's exactly right. It's an enabler. Yeah. It's it's infectious. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't give you something I don't have. If I'm miserable, I can't give you happiness. Right. But if I'm happy, I might be able to help you achieve happiness. Yeah, it doesn't always work. No, it's not no. it's not perfect but no. almost nothing works always <laughs> that's another one that i like <laughs> well doug this has been fantastic yeah, i appreciate your time today and thanks for being a genius i wrote the book the simple genius you but the the genius is the reader not the author where can people find you online they can just look me up google me doug lenick Wonderfully enough, I'm the only one in the world that anybody has been able to locate. So it's unlike some names where if you Google the name, there's about a thousand of them. There's one Doug Lennox, so you can Google me. You can also go to our website, think, the word think, two, the number two, perform.com. Thinktoperform.com. That's it. That's pretty easy. Yeah, Doug Lennox, L-E-N-N-I-C-K, for those of you who are wondering how to spell it. It's not Lennox. I don't own any of that. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Doug. This has been fantastic. Thank you, Don. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. Your time is precious and we truly value it. To help continually improve the show, send us your feedback or guest ideas to future at 12geniuses.com. This show couldn't come to you if it weren't for a group of exceptional people. Special thanks to Tony Gordon, Jay Ludgrove, and the rest of the team at GL Productions in London. Finally, if you want more information about how we can prepare your leaders for a rapidly changing business world, influenced by shifting demographics, new technologies, and innovative business models, go to 12geniuses.com.